Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm sideline reporter Kyone Wolf here with novelist Zachary Thomas Dodson, who's just pulled off one of the biggest tournament of books upsets of all time, beating heavily favored Lauren Groff in her novel Fates and Furies. Zach, talk about what it means to you to win under these trying circumstances. I don't understand. What do you mean, talk about it? You know, you um, talk about the mindset you had going in when really nobody was giving you a chance. You just want me to say something. Yes. Talk about winning and getting in a zone and, you know, talk about taking your game to the next level. So, are you asking me a question or do you just want to hear sounds coming out of me? All right. Let me put this another way. How big was it? How big was what? How big was it when you realized your portrayal of ambition, lust, betrayal, and human fallibility was pulling away from Groff's portrayal of ambition, lust, betrayal, and human fallibility? I guess it was big. Okay, uh, talk about, you know, how big? Uh, again, with the talk about. Okay, walk me through the moment when you knew you had to beat President Obama's favorite novel. What? Talk about how big that was. You know, you only have two questions, and one of them isn't even really a question. Are you aware of that? Looking ahead, next up is the winner of The Sympathizer versus Oreo. Are you looking past them to the Turner House, one of the juggernauts of this year's draw? Walk me through what it takes to win and, and talk about how big it would be if you ran the table and, and won the big prize, a, a live rooster. You mean like a male chicken? That's what you win? Walk me through pretending you didn't know that. I don't want a chicken. I live in Finland. How would I even get it home? We're going to have to take a break here because, as you can hear from the crowd noise, the warm-ups have started for the next game, A Spool of Blue Thread versus The Story of My Teeth. Thread versus Teeth. So the winner will be the boss of Floss. Ann Tyler is on the court, and the cagey 74-year-old veteran seems to be favoring her left foot, but Tyler doesn't talk to the press. I'm going to start doing that. How big would that be if you stopped talking? No time for an answer. We've got a show to do. And now people still talk about 1921 when he and Edith Wharton went into overtime. Colin McEnroe. Although not in the context of this tournament. Edith and I just went into overtime. It was a long time ago. All right. So, yes, this is our yearly a Tournament of Books show where we'll explain what that means to those of you who are new to this concept. But let me explain, first of all, who's here in studio. Rand Richards Cooper is a novelist, essayist, and critic. Uh, Alex Dubin is a writer who frequently complains that this show spends too much time on television and not enough on books. So we're doing this just for him, basically. Uh, Julia Pistel is a writer and founding member of CT Improv. She hosts the podcast Literary Disco and WNPR's The Radius Project. She's very busy. Uh, and joining us from the studios at WBEZ in Chicago is Kevin Guilford who's the Tournament of Books uh, Tournament Commissioner and kind of the Joe Buck of the uh, Tournament of Books, although that's a very mean thing to say about somebody. Uh, he's the author most recently of A Drive Into the Gap. So, um, wow, everybody's talking about it. I mean, just everybody's talking about the fact that Fates and Furies, one of the big favorites uh, of the tournament, was uh, upset uh, this morning by Bats of the Republic, or yesterday, excuse me, by Bats of the Republic. Um, there's been some small-scale looting, 
that was mostly Kevin, however. So, um, so, so what are we talking about here? We're, we're plunging you into the middle of this. Um, Kevin, I'm going to let you kind of set the scene, but I think it's good just maybe to take that one particular contest as an example of what we're talking about. We're talking about 16 plus 1, because there's now a play in a round, uh, books r- arrayed in brackets, not unlike the uh, college basketball championships, and then each pitted against the other and, and allowed to go forward in, pl- in playoffs, right? So, so how... How does it even happen that Fates and Furies, which really was kind of one of the it books of the year, um, wound up losing in the first round? Well, in a lot of ways, it's it's really appropriate because, you know, the, the whole tournament was conceived as a joke. You know, we were I was sitting around with uh, Rosecrans Baldwin and Andrew Womack, who founded the morning news, uh, the web magazine, the morning news. And we were talking about how stupid book awards are, but also about how what great conversation comes out of. Uh, every year out of book awards about mo- mo- largely about people talking about how stupid they are um, and so I I just threw out the idea I said let's let's have a book award of our own and let's make it the stupidest one of all uh, <laughs> let's take let's take 16 books from the previous year I'm a sports fan so I said let's just throw them into an NCAA basketball bracket we'll have judges uh, each judge will read two books They'll advance one, but they'll have to. They they can't just go into a room and say this book is better than that one. They have to af- actually defend their decision and say specifically why they liked one book over the other. Uh, and we'll keep doing that until uh, we end up with a champion book of the year, and then we will uh, give that uh, author a live rooster. Um, and I was completely kidding. Uh, we were drinking. I, I I this is not this is not a thing I wanted to do. In any respect, I didn't want—I didn't want to be bothered with it. I didn't want to put the effort into it. I had no intention. And Rosecrans and Andrew, on the other hand, they're doer kinds of guys. And over the next few months, they put it together. This was 12 years ago, and they put together the first tournament of books. And I was sort of locked into uh, participating. So, um, and so, you know, the the whole idea was based on the idea that that th- this, uh, j- this the judging of books is subjective and arbitrary, and that. Uh, you know, it's it's an impossible out of the hundreds of thousands of novels that are produced every year to even contemplate what are the best ten or five or one, much less definitively say. And so, as much as as you noted, Colin, I love Fates and Furies. Fates and Furies was my favorite book from last year. Um, it's entirely appropriate that it was. Uh, Upset yesterday by bats and uh, bats of the republic. Yeah, no, it's not totally out of the tournament, and we'll explain to you why that is because there's a, a number of ingenious little mechanisms here, uh, including what's called a, a kind of a zombie round. But before we do that, I mean, since as Kevin says, some of the purpose of this tournament is to engender conversations uh, about books, conversations that wouldn't otherwise happen, uh, and and preceding that, another function of the tournament is to get a whole bunch of us to read books we would not have otherwise picked out to read. But so, but anyway, let's have one of those conversations. We can have it right now uh, about that battle. So, um, Rand, you're really good at kind of setting the stage for things. Maybe you can very quickly sketch out Fates and Furies and Bats of the Republic. <laughs> Give us a sense of what these two books are uh, as they headed into that clash. Well, one of the many recurring pleasures of the tournament of, of books is the sort of apples and oranges situation <laughs> in which very, very different kinds of books are pitted against each other, so much so that you find it's almost impossible to, to choose a winner because you're not comparing likes. We were talking in the run-up to the show <clears throat> about how fiction changes over the decades, and we mentioned that if you'd gone back, say, uh, 50 years to like the National Book Awards in 1966 and just opened up those books, you'd be surprised, from my vantage point now, 
how you mostly saw sort of page after page of text and nothing but text. Well, novels are text, right? Well, if you look at uh, Dodson's book, it's not a novel in any recognizable sense that most people would have had in 1966. It's not, it's less written than curated. Uh, it's interesting that he's a book designer and you can see that. This is just about the most beautiful book you'll hold in your hands. But it's, it's compiled out of all, all sorts of things. It's got a double-sided dust jacket. It has texts and maps and drawings, a sealed envelope uh, marked Do Not Open. Uh, there are books within books. There's a two-track story. But I found it. This, this, actually, I did not give – I grade all the books. I did not give this book a grade because I, I didn't actually – entirely read it. I admired it. It struck me as a book that you want to admire for its design purposes and you want to own more than perhaps you're actually going to sit through and read it. To, to compare that then against a, a, a massive conventional but interestingly structured novel that takes us deep into the lives of a bunch of friends and particularly into a marriage and does it over an entire generation, it's a, like a totally different reading experience. So I had Fates and Furies winning, but um, you know it was like, uh, which which do you prefer, pizza or champagne? Right. It was mm -hmm. a little bit like a hockey team playing a basketball team, trying to figure out uh, how they would do at football. Um, so, but Julia, one thing about Fates and Furies is, uh, and you as a, uh, a literary podcast host could tell us even more about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you knew the names of five literary novels that came out last year. Pretty good chance that, that Lauren Groff's book, Fates and Furies, was one of those novels. I mean, it was just sort of, yeah. as they say in sports, it was in the conversation. For sure. And, you know, you alluded to this earlier, but um, Obama said it was his favorite book of the year, which is, if you've read it, an intriguing, <laughs> enticing little who, statement. Who knew he liked orgies that much? <laughs> I know. Uh, but it's funny because, Rand, as I hear you describe these books, you know, if you were to say which one reads, you know, on a prose level more like a fairy tale, I mean, Fates and Furies does does have this, I mean, the main character's name is Lancelot, you know, and they, it, it trips through these like beautiful phrases or some people think purpley prose and it's just walking right on that fairy tale line as it goes deeper and deeper. Um, so I can see why this would appeal to a wide, a wide range of people and it doesn't strike me at all um, surprising that it's, it's so popular because it also has this, you know, idea in the middle of the book it subverts what you think is happening and your expectations which seems to be what popular readers are craving at this time right fates and furious contains lines like this she wanted to press herself against him until his beautiful innocence had stamped itself on her now when you read this novel you have to decide whether this is romance writing or this ultimately or this is a novelist doing something interesting with the idioms of romance writing it's one of several challenges the novel poses you yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, this it, it, uh, Fates and Furies is that kind of odd combination of things that can be identified as literary fiction uh, mashed up with pulp fiction uh, and uh, melodrama and all kinds of things that are sometimes sneered at a little bit. But, Alex, we, we should see that Bats of the Republic, when there are stories within stories and books within books, as uh, Rand says. But part of it is it's uh, what you think is a, we know from reading your blog, um, a somewhat overworked vein of post-apocalyptic fiction. Part of this takes place in the 22nd, 22nd century? Yeah, part so, of it's in 21-something. I now don't have that in front of me. And there's been a collapsed <laughs> capital C. Of course. <laughs> and, and like pretty much every prediction of Earth in the future, civilization has collapsed, and now it's a handful of cities in North America. Um, and so there's that story. And then there's also 
1843 expedition by a naturalist from Chicago into what is then the Republic of Texas. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, what, what was your, how did, how did you see this contest going? Well, first of all, I expected Fates and Furies to, to go. I mean, simply because for all the reasons we've been discussing, that it's, it's one of those books that's been part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I didn't enjoy Fates and Furies at much. Um, I mean, as we said, the first half is from, I mean, the entire book is told in the third person. The first book is from his perspective, more or less, with a few small digressions. And the second half is from hers. Um, the problem is the first half is really boring. I'm trying to find a more polite way to say this, but it's it's boring. It's cliche. He has a he comes from a weird rich family. He marries her, and the mother cuts him off. They you know bounce around for about a decade, not making much money, and then he becomes a playwright, and overnight he's a success. And then they spend you know the next few decades happy and wealthy and yeah it, it's kind of boring so then you kind of need a second half in which everything gets switched around and you need a perspective simply because it's like this is a dull cliche of a story hmm. colin can i yeah. let me say one thing about uh, ad hominem judgments about characters because i think it's an interesting topic i actually agree with most of what alex said but it's possible to come along and, and sort of make categorical objections about any kind of novel based on uh, the characters that they're taking on. Now, what that means is one of two things. Either, well, you just can't deal with that subject matter, or the not more significantly, the novelist has not done what's necessary mm-hmm. to get you to arrive at a different kind of judgment. Now, the fact is a really good novelist can take almost any kind of character and make that character sympathetically available to, or even if, or at least interesting, if it's a villainous or adverse character. But if you end up saying with this book, for instance, oh, these are just a bunch of precious preppies um, with, with their, with their uh, uh, precious preoccupations and all that money in the family background, it's, it's probably because, it's not a problem with you, most likely, um, I, I began to have that reaction. I, I actually kind of liked the first half of this novel. She, she does some interesting things. She has a sort of a, a affectionate um, uh, attitude toward her mildly eccentric characters. And... She, her prose is a little bit E. Annie Prue-like at times. It's, it's kind of quirky in the way she changes the sentence rhythms and uses familiar words unexpectedly. So there were efforts of style that I was very much open to admiring. But I found as the book went on, I, I began to resist it and get, and get annoyed and ended up thinking, ah, these precious people, and sort of pushing the book away. So if I were going to spend more time, and I probably would try to get into the ways in which she ultimately failed to make people seem more like more than generic caricatures of the types of people they were. Yeah, we, should, we, should, we should say just before we say anything else uh, that will be too hurtful that uh, Kevin Gilfoyle uh, grew up in the same town as the author, uh, bought the same ice cream as uh, the characters uh, in this book uh, uh, by, and, and Kevin, uh, all is not lost, right? We should actually make it clear what, what this the zombie round thing is. This book, although it did lose in the first round, that won't stop it from becoming the champion if that's meant to be. That's right. There, before the tournament started, uh, we had uh, readers and fans of uh, The Rooster vote on what their favorite book was in a secret ballot. And uh, we have those results locked away in a uh, vault somewhere in, uh, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, the tournament progresses, when we, 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 when we winnow the field down to two presumptive semifinalists, the top two, rate, uh, top, the top two books that got the most votes in that poll 
uh, will come come back from the dead, and those uh, our presumptive semifinals will have to battle these zombie books uh, in order to get into the finals. And there's actually there's this now has been around long enough, so there are all these interesting terms of art. One of them is uh, that's been applied to Fates and Furies is the Hillary Mantella effect, which means yeah. that uh, people tend to cast their votes since they don't know what's going to happen. They cast their votes for books that seem like kind of weaklings, you know, like maybe they're going to need a little bit of help as opposed to something like uh, Bring Up the Bodies or in this case Fates and Furies. Why would that book need my help in a vote? Maybe I should vote for something that's more of a Cinderella team so that uh, Lauren Groff's book has yet another thing to worry about. Um, Julia Pistel, I want to talk about Bats of the Republic for another second. Sure. Um, one show that you have proposed that we do uh, here at the Colin McEnroe Show mm-hmm. in the past is... I have lots of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is, it's a great idea, we will do it someday, is what future dystopia are we living in? Yes. Uh, like, what's, what is right now? You know, which book is that? Which movie is that? Um, and I, I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but I, I sort of, I thought maybe this is like a whole new genre or the fact that Maria Bastios, the judge, loved this book so much might speak to the moment we're in. I was gonna, I was gonna create a new sci-fi subgenre called Trumptopia, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, sadly, we have all been shocked to learn that the dystopia we're living in is The Simpsons, um, which is very sad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think dystopia novels have just captured the public imagination for the last 50 years, if not more. And this is just another, like, piling a, pile another one on the pile. Let's <laughs> fear where we're all going. Um, as well, some of the books that we read last year also uh, had that kind of feeling to them. Um, but I, I think that people might not have loved this book, um, even though, of course, it did win this round with one judge, um, because we might be entering dystopia fatigue. You know, when, we, when we're entering our own very real possible dystopia, it's painful and annoying <laughs> to think about all the different ways that our lives could go wrong. It's not. It's what the uh, author and professor, Trinity professor, the late uh, but much missed Fred File used to call "end of the world fun" for you and me. That's why we <laughs> read dystopian novels. Is end of the world fun, but it's not fun anymore. You know, Colin. The other thing I would say about this book and relates to other books, um, the I, I think the New York Times uh, review of of Bachelor Republic said it's it's impossible not to admire the yeah. meticulous yeah. effort of this book, but it lacks forward momentum. Now. Um, the, the, the question of forward momentum, what keeps you reading, and whether your desire to keep reading is right. sort of equivalent to or tantamount to saying this is a good book. I mean, there, there are books that are real page turners that when you're finished, you think, well, I, I couldn't stop reading, but I'm, I'm not sure I would call it a terrific book. This Bachelor of the Public, for me, is sort of the opposite. Yes. There are many, many things to admire, but I mean, I'm just going to sample through. I'm going to taste little amuse moments, uh, but I'm, I, there's no way I can read through that. Well, one thing I really do admire and is not dystopic at all is just the complete embrace of the book as object and saying this is how it needs to look, this is how it needs to feel, this is how it feels when you hold it in your hand. And as any true book lover, and I mean lover of the physical object knows, you know, that is a tremendously valuable thing. And, you know, we had the opposite in this. We also had a, a digital novel. So, Again, it's it's the apples and oranges. It's you know right. we're throwing in not only the story and the novel and the page turning, 
But the idea that this book is worthy to be made. And it's still interesting that a book like that comes along at, at, the, at the moment that we're at. It's, exactly. it's almost like it's necessary. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Kevin, say, say, one, quick, say one more thing and then I'm going to go to a break. But go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. There's a really interesting thing in terms of forward momentum that should be said about this book, too, which the book possesses a physical MacGuffin in the back of the book, an mm. envelope that all the characters carry around for the source of the length of the book and don't open that you're not supposed to open until the end. And I, I thought that was it's gimmicky for sure. Right. But uh, I thought that's that was a really interesting something I'd never actually seen before. Right. It's as if you walked into Citizen Kane and they handed you a sled. <laughs> right. <as you> <laughs> right. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more of our Tournament of Books show right after this. I've got too many books. All right, we're back. It's our yearly Tournament of Books show. By the way, you can find out all about the Tournament of Books on the Morning News site. We should probably have said that. But you go on Morning News, you can see the brackets. Uh, we'll post some stuff up on our website, too, at WNPR.org. You can see the brackets. You can see which books you uh, need to get. Uh, you're a little bit late. You have to start reading really fast because there are 17 of them. There's one of them you can th- – there's a few of them you could conceivably throw out already. Uh, certainly, you don't even need to read the John Irving one because it's gone. All right, with us in studio, Rand Richards Cooper, novelist, essay essayist critic Alex Dubin, writer who frequently complains that this show spends too much time on television, not enough on books, and is currently... What's your blog call? Where are you blogging about this term? Uh, I am on alex-dubin.com. All right. And Julia Pistel, a writer, founding member of CT Improv, uh, impresario, host of the podcast Literary Disco, and WNPR's The Radius Project. With us in the, from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Kevin Guilfoyle. He's the Tournament, tournament of Books Tournament Commissioner, uh, one of the inventors of it, the author most recently of, of A Drive Into the Gap, and one of the commentators. I called him the Joe Buck of the tournament. But that, Kevin, that seems so unkind. Who, who would Kenneth you like? Kennesaw Mountain Landis. <laughs> <Yeah>. There's that. <laughs> I would take uh, Vin Scully, Red Barber. Yeah, Vin Scully, Red Barber. That's better. All right. So uh, Jim Nance is like the worst thing I could call you, but uh, <laughs> look, I would never do that to another human being. All right. So, um, Alex, I want to start back with you. I mean, one thing that we've alluded to a little bit is, you know, I mean, every year there are kind of it books. There are consensus books. Last year, going into this tournament, the 800-pound gorilla probably was Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See. It's a little bit less obvious. And there were a few others, you know, that kind of had – that approached that status. Um, this year, it's a little foggier, right? This year, it's a lot foggier. Um, I think Doer also had, it was that rare occasion of he was a huge bestseller mm-hmm. uh, in this country and all over the world. And it was a critical success, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, not really as common as we would like it to be. Yeah, and be he honest. was surprised by it as well. That well, was He was his own was underdog story. <laughs> well, and everyone was surprised by it. I mean, he that wasn't his first book. That was his fourth or fifth book. I mean, and he was very good up and and he was very good. He was yeah. a good writer, but and the elevator pitch on that book wouldn't necessarily have told you, you know, that it was going to be a home run. Exactly. Right. Um and this year, I mean, this year if there are two, it would be Fates and Furies and A Little Life. Mm-hmm. Um and Fates and Furies of course already got knocked out, but it's, you know, the president said it was his favorite book of the year, which is not uh and lots of celebrities read it. And lots all this of kind celebrities, of stuff. yes. Um, but if you even look, look at the awards, um, I think The Sympathizer is the only one of the finalists of the five finalists for the Penn Faulkner. The only yeah. one from the tournament is The Sympathizer. And for the National Book Award, Adam Johnson, a previous Rooster winner. And Kevin, I believe the only writer who ever tried to actually claim <laughs> his live Rooster 
Uh, Adam Johnson has just won the National Book Award, uh, but he's not in this draw. Yeah, that's right. He uh, he did have a uh, book of short stories out uh, this year, and so um, yeah, I can't exactly say why he's not. He's say we 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 have a short story collection in here by uh, Anthony Marr, the Czar Love Love and Techno, which is a terrific book. Um, but and I think maybe the thinking was, well, Adam just won this thing a couple of years ago. We'll uh, uh, give somebody else a, a try. If you if you know that you could eventually create a bracket of just people who've already won this thing, and... <laughs> a, a master's division, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like that idea. Well, let's quickly talk about a little life because if there is another book that kind of is that it book, it's uh, it's a little life. Um, and so, Julia, you were one of the earlier con- early consumers of this because. Mm-hmm. You're such a big macher now that you get the uh, advanced reader co- copy. Well, yeah, um, a Random House um, sales rep, you know, was visiting when I was at the Twain House and pressed it into my hands. I mean, she had like a 500-pound bag of them, and she was <laughs> even— Which had, had two three. copies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I read it right away, and, I mean, first of all, the cover is so non-traditional. It's this close-up of a— a statue in of a man's face in agony and ecstasy at the same time, and um, it's such an emotional book. So as as you guys were just joking about, it's very long. I mean, I would say eight hundred pages, easy. Um, and it's a very close eight hundred thirteen. Oh my god, <laughs> uh, a very close read on four friends, and then it eventually winnows down to two friends, and then. Really, one character comes out into the forefront. But um, I was surprised that this book was so popular, honestly, because it is so relentlessly dark and depressing. And what I really loved about this book is that there was no <laughs> there was no relief. There was there was <laughs> moments where it seemed like there could be relief, um, but it didn't. It did not argue that depression or abuse are things that can ever you know, magically be solved. Um, so I really love that. And I think the book is is really long and has a lot of flaws, especially in some of the characters that you think will stick around and then kind of vanish. Um, but I have not yet met a person who was not deeply, deeply moved by it and kind of having that agony, ecstasy experience themselves lying on the couch at the end just distraught. So I, I think Ke- I argument. think Kevin can introduce you to some people who uh, weren't deeply moved, but maybe we'll get to that <laughs> in just a second. But because um, sure. I, I think Kevin, you described it as kind of a love it or hated type book. But sure. but Rand, one of the things this book does goes back to what you were saying in the previous segment, uh, which is you you are introduced. We are introduced to four primary characters and then some other characters who orbit around them. And the characters aren't necessarily people that we would like uh, or we don't have to like them. We might have the same reaction that you were describing about Fates and Furies. Um, I feel like this author does a better job of somehow or other binding us to these characters no matter how thorny and problematic they might be. Well, by the way, I just want to say in passing, in at least three of these books, a major character unexpectedly dies in the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. That's unusual. That happens more often now than it did 30 or 40 years ago. That's called the Game of Thrones effect. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting uh, to me. Um, th- this novel is sort of like the, the example of the loose, baggy monster of a novel. It's 800 pages long. It, it is it is incorrigibly digressive. Um, it sometimes seemed to me to be a book that was distilled from uh, transcripts of a of an eight month long trial, and they only took out about thirty percent of the transcript. 
um, when you meet a secondary character like the adoptive father of the main character, and he's a law professor, you, you get a four-page summary of the guy's lecture in some Law 101 <laughs> class. So, so this is an 800-page novel. I would have taken 300 pages off of this, and you still would have had a long novel. There is at the core of this novel something that is almost, almost compulsively engaging, and that is the, the portrait, the psychological portrait of the main character who has, who has uh, we won't go into details, but he's got a, ter a terrible victimization in his past. We're living in a, in a moment in, in America where, uh, it, where, where sexual victimization um, and, and abuse is, is, a, is a topic that um, is increasingly a topic of revelation. The number of lives that have been damaged by it grows and grows. Attention is being paid to things that, that were ignored, denied, and covered up 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think in a way, in a sort of zeitgeist way, this novel is riding on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, Daniel, Men The critic, critic Daniel Mendelssohn referred to the novel's unending parade of aesthetically gratuitous scenes of punitive and humiliating violence. Mm -hmm. One dividing line of this book is going to divide the people who agree with that summary from those who say, you just can't take it. Mm -hmm. I, I found myself at certain key moments of this book feeling anger at the author. That's an unaccustomed position for me to be in. But it suggests to me that I'm probably ultimately on Mendelssohn's side of that judgment and felt that um, mm. a, a gr gratuitous amount of violence was being heaped on. That's one of my complaints about this novel. By the way, a novel I could not stop reading. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's such an interesting line to live on is who is being abused? The fictional character? We're not telling a true story of someone and we're kind of showing what they experienced or is, is it crossing that line into abusing the audience um, or the reader? And In a Lars von Trier kind of way. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I feel like the psychological, the, the skill with which the psychological experience was uh, written and the fact that we actually don't get a description of a lot of the abuse until at least two to three hundred pages into the novel, which... Of course, it's an 800-page novel. <laughs> right. There's a terrific um, amount of narrative withholding and dark hinting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it does ask the question, you know, is this, is this the way to get people to empathize with someone who might have experienced abuse? Or does it cross over into, like, an almost pornographic experience of pain? Well, I mean, you could also make the case that, you know, I mean, in, in Fates and Furies, one of the characters is, is subjected to uh, abuse and degradation degradation and humiliation. To me, that felt a little bit more tossed off, whereas mm -hmm. here, you know, you really just go right into the abyss. Well, and also the yeah. damage. I mean, my, my, my wife worked for, for three years with, with, with young people who had been victims of sexual abuse. And what is most compelling and in a way magnificent about this novel is, the uh, to me, the absolute believable, believable nature and the painful authenticity of the main character and how he has armored himself against any and all attempt to help, help him and the amount of self-loathing and self-blaming that goes along with this complex. Um, it, it's, yeah, almost ahead, a, it's almost a test of the reader's capacity for empathy. And, I, and that's, that's sort of the litmus test of whether you like it. Like, if you are willing to absorb it all... Um, you know, I, I think you react one way, but in some way, some readers, I think, just start feeling the pain too much and can't, don't want to go on anymore. Mm -hmm. yep. 
Although, Alex, I think one of the things that, you know, as we sort of think about what kind of reader we are, there are a lot of readers who are looking for some kind of really immersive experience, you know? And if you think about some of the books like All the Light We Cannot See, like The Goldfinch, you know, these are long books. They have a slightly 19th century quality to them, uh, and you lose yourself in them. Whatever you lose yourself in, whatever the qualities are of that, it's immersive. And to me, that's one of the selling points of this book. I'm not... If I'm going to go to the trouble of doing something like this, I want this really kind of reality-altering long trip. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of us really want a book that is long, that sp- lets us spend time with the characters, both by being, you know, seven, 800 pages long, but also to spend decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, to spend, I mean, to get a sense of who they are, to get a sense of this world, to really... I mean, to immerse ourselves in it. I mean, that I think that's very true. And, I mean, for example, I would agree with Mendelssohn's line, but I still found the book to be a very, a very nuanced portrait of what depression is, of how everything, good or bad, that happens to the person reinforces those earlier notions um, towards how suicidal thoughts play out, um, Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I definitely understand. Like, I, I would have cut a lot of the abuse. And, I mean, some things I, I think don't necessarily need to be spelled out. Um, and I found exhausting. Here's the thing. You know, this is obviously an incredibly difficult subject to talk about, um, sexual abuse. And other novels contain very difficult subjects, even when done satirically, you know, race, etc., religion. And... Where else to let people have that 20 to 30 hours of deep thought and personal challenge than in the novel? Like, isn't this the place for this kind of thinking? If we're going to see something graphically depicted, I feel like a novel is a better place to see it than on TV or in the movies, which is where a lot of these conversations are ending up. So to be able to privately confront you know, your own thinking on these things and ask these questions of yourselves of how much of this can I take? I mean, (laughs) one of the feelings I always have is, oh my God, I'm so depressed from reading this book about depression, which took me like two weeks to read. And then I'm like, oh wow, I just lived with depression for two weeks. You know, what does it feel like to live a lifetime of this or years or decades? And <laughs> you just made me wonder whether there's a there's, there's a movie project here, and whether somebody oh. already has the rights. You know, we're going to see Ben Stiller as Jude or something. Oh but, my! God. Um, all right. Well, I, I don't want to. I, I have to keep things moving here. There's so many things sure. we want to talk about. I, I, one of the things, one of the uh, Julia was saying before we went on the show, you thought this was a very well chosen, uh, very diverse, uh, interesting, well balanced uh, group of sixteen or seventeen books. And, and Rand, one of the things that I was saying too is, I feel as though you know, there's been a lot of research recently that fiction does, in fact, engender more empathy in us. Um, and if you'd said to me, oh, yeah, how about reading a book about 1975 Vietnamese refugee, blah, 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 I would have thought, eh, no thanks. <laughs> but that one of the experiences we're having here is, in fact, being jammed into the realities of people whose realities we might not seek out. Right. You know, I think the, the book we just discussed, A Little Life, there are lessons in empathy that are that are obvious, and they they consist in challenges, as we just said, that are posed to the reader. But there are plenty of other books. The Sympathizer is one. I would point to the Turner House that that provide different kinds of lessons in empathy. The Turner House is about several generations of a large African American family living in a section of Detroit that's been hollowed out, and it's partly about their home that is that is now uh, abandoned and underwater. 
Um, but it's also about sibling relationships in uh, in this generation of the of the Turner family, in which there are many many brothers and sisters. And one of the things that Angela Flournoy, who's the, the the writer, does in a very unobtrusive and quiet way, she uh, creates um, the complexity of sibling relationships in such a way that we see both the upside and the downside, the sibling, the sibling struggles and rivalries and sniping, but also the love. And as far as empathy goes, she's able to do one thing very, very well, and that is have characters who are in trouble and doing wrong things. A brother who's trying to secretly short sell the house in order to reacquire it. Uh, a sister who has a, a, uh, an addictive gambling habit and is basically stealing money in order to, in order to get there. And instead of in any way judging these people, you are given their actions from the inside out and sort of walked through them incrementally, step by step, as they, as they tread toward um, wrongdoing. And, and that in itself is, is a kind of quietly humbling exercise in empathy you know, for, for you. I'd recommend that novel on that basis. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Alex, if you had a particular one that did that for you. But I, I, I was sort of thinking, not to keep harping back to the present moment or circling back to the present moment, but this experience is kind of the antithesis and maybe the antidote to, you know, Trumpian white nationalism, uh, that somehow <laughs> we are the reminded that there are other people uh, out there and they have lives and concerns and interests. To be reminded of that and also that they're on some level not very different from us in some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think the Turner House is a great example because there, it's a book with a lot of conflict, but a book with no villains. Which, I mean, if you want a description of family, that is, you know, I, I don't know how else you could describe family except to say that. You know, Kevin, one decision that you made that was very interesting, just given what the general parameters of the tournament of books are, is the book Oreo, which was uh, published uh, many years ago. The author is now deceased. I think it was published, what, in 75, 85? 75. 75. 75. And, and then, then republished, I think, in 2011. How did this book uh, and why did this book wind up in your draw? Uh, you know what? <laughs> That's a great question. It, it was something that I I think we've never I, we might have had a reissue. Um, I don't know, in, in once, uh, but it was it was a much more um, uh, a, a b much bigger publisher and a much more uh, of a of a bigger deal. Oreo was uh, a book that a couple of people that uh, on the sort of committee that is making up this book were really passionate about, and we thought it was interesting that it was this kind of forgotten gem. Um, that seemed uh, particularly relevant to our time. Um, we, you know, we sort of look at, at the mix. We thought it was kind of a nice compliment to uh, The Sellout, which was uh, a book that many of us loved and was one of the first books to make this list. Um, and so, uh, you know, for all of those reasons, it's just it's like one of those things where you throw it in there and it just feels right. Yeah. The Sellout, we should say, is a, a sort of... Um, African-American comic novel, kind of a very, very edgy satire um, and, and pretty different in tone, <laughs> I think. Oh, yeah. um, all right, so let's grab a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to ask each one of the panelists just to highlight one book we haven't talked about. There's a long, hard book Why no mention of Snooky? She put out a book and a line of bronzers last year. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. 
Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joyce Carol Oates. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of 50 Shades of Here and Now, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose walks a mile in Claire Underwood's high heels. And now, back to Colin. So we're talking about the tournament of books, uh, which uh, takes the fiction of the previous year, mostly of the previous year, uh, and uh, sort of plays it out in, in a pseudo-athletic Format. Although the real athletes actually are our panelists today uh, and our guest in Chicago because they read these this many books. It's sixteen plus one books, and uh, I didn't I didn't make it anywhere near close. But these guys are our true athletes. So Rand Richards Cooper, novelist, essayist, critic; Alex Dubin, uh, writer and blogger; Julia Pistel, uh, comedian, writer, podcast host, all kinds of things. Uh, Kevin Guilfoyle is the tournament commissioner of the tournament of books and the author, most recently, of A Drive into the Gap. So I'm going to give you each of you just a couple of minutes because uh, since there were basically 17 books and we can't cover all of them to pick one of your darlings uh, and quickly uh, give us a sense uh, of uh, why it is and Alex why don't you go first sure I loved The Sympathizer uh, which is I mean it was mentioned before this is a novel it's essentially a spy novel Uh, it's about a young man who is French Vietnamese and he is a South Vietnamese army officer when the novel starts, and he is a spy for North Vietnam. And the book follows him through the last hours as Saigon falls to a refugee camp in the Philippines, to California, as many people are plotting to retake the country. Um, it is. I read this book before it came out last year, um, and I got to interview the author. Um, it is an incredible piece of work. It's. I read this probably in February of last year, and I remember thinking, "This is one of the best books I will read all year." It's. Uh, it's amazing. It's as if uh, a Vietnamese writer wrote the other side of kind of a Graham Greene novel. Uh, it is. There's. There's definitely a, a Graham Greene kind of feel to it. Right. Yes. Um, we should say that today it quote-unquote, played Oreo, and it has moved on to the next round. So Sympathizer uh, has some momentum. Uh, Julia, how about you? What are you going to talk about? I would like to highlight a book that I know at least Rand and I both really love, The Story of My Teeth, um, by a young Mexican novelist named Valeria Lucelli. Um, And this book, okay, so the general premise of the book is about a man named Highway who auctions off famous people's teeth, and he has Marilyn Monroe's teeth inserted into his face. Contemporary Um, realism. Yes. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, I loved it because the writing was so arresting and strong, and the premise is so strange that it evokes so much curiosity. Um, However, kind of one of the big delights of this book is its origin, which is so equally as weird as what I just said, which was she was commissioned to write it by a juice factory, and then she would write a chapter and then deliver it to the factory workers um, in this this juice place and then they would give her feedback and tell her their own stories and so it's this amazingly strange amalgam of great writing and just weirdness that I just absolutely Uh, Amalgam, I see what you did there with the teeth (laughs) (laughs) Hey (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, Rand He's beside himself We're just thinking about a bunch of dental jokes (laughs) Um, 
So for me, I have I we I filled in the bracket, and I in the, for the final I have two novels: the the Czar of Love and Techno by Anthony Mara, and the Turner House by Angela Furlong. And it's a good choice for readers because if you're the reader who more prefers something that's sort of uh, empathic, um, uh, heartwarming, and and wise and warm and 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 funny, then you want uh, the Turner House by Angela Furlong. If you want something that's more uh, intricate, sort of more conspicuously artful. Um, then uh, you, you'll want the Anthony Mara book. Um, I, I love them both equally. I, I can't pick a winner between the two, but interestingly, you know, different books appeal to different readers or to different sides of the same reader. So we've already talked about the Turner House. The Czar of Love and Techno, it's a, it's a collection of link stories. Anthony Mara is a young writer, and he spent a number of years in Russia studying, and one of the many impressive things about this book is how he's, he's picked... Uh, things from daily life in post-Soviet Russia, Russia, and he's implemented them into these stories without it ever seeming like, oh, this is a guy who filled his notebook with stuff and he's just using it. The stories cover about seven decades in the history of the Soviet Union and now post-Soviet Russia, and they are, they are linked in very intricate ways, which I can't begin to sum up, except to say that many of them have to do with a painting, of all things, by a minor 19th century Chechen painter, landscape painter, and the various ways in which this landscape painting becomes the source of narrative um, structures this book of stories. He's a very political writer. You can tell he's read his Orwell. Some of these stories are, are very explicitly political, but they are joined to a strong storytelling impetus. Some of them are like 19th century old-fashioned tales. One of the virtues is that in different stories, he's, he's narratively extremely protean so he can sound like a 19th century narrator but then at the next uh, in the next story it's like oh a Siberian town in in 2010 and the kids are into techno so um, the the czar of love and techno um, it's sort of Gogol and meets Nabokov and uh, and contemporary fiction as well all right so Kevin Guilfoyle uh, fates and furies has been ripped screaming from your breast um, <laughs> and uh, they've just covered a whole lot of other books too is there uh, another one that you'd like to call listeners attention to one that you think uh, could be kind of a Cinderella team in this tournament yeah, you know I really I know Colin this is a book you didn't like as much as I did but um, Kent Haruf's Our Souls at Night which was a book that completely took me by surprise it's a novel about uh, a pair of septuagenarians who um, are both uh, widowed and they um, just enter into basically a friends with benefits uh, kind of relationship. And it's not played for laughs. It's not, you know, it seems like a comic premise in a lot of ways, but it, it uh, you know, it's it, like a movie De Niro would play in his later, you know, horrible uh, uh, years. But um, it's, it's not, it's, it's just, it's just a really beautiful book. And it's a reminder that these Characters of this age are rarely at the center of modern stories. They're always, almost always, on the periphery, and they're they're there because of their relationship to the younger characters. And to have um, these two older people at the center of the story, I th- it just really moved me in a in a pretty powerful way. I'm actually totally in favor of anything that puts old people at the Co- center. Co- you know, one thing that's really <laughs> cool about turn- tournament of books, if you go onto the website to read the the critics engaging with each other, and then to go and read the comments that are posted by people. It's, it's really it's such a high-quality forum in which people are really trying to figure out why they like what they like. It's great. We um, probably haven't said enough about The Sellout either, which is one of the funniest books I have read in a long, 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 long time. Yeah, although, I mean, one thing, you know, Rand made the interesting point as we were getting ready for this, that you sort of learn 
and it, I think it changes over time what you like and what you don't like, what you're reading for. I think I'm going through a period where I don't particularly like tour de force style writing that's where every sentence is just kind of loaded up <laughs> with <laughs> with tricks yeah. and and sm- smart things and cleverness and turns of phrase and uh, and for me the sellout I felt a little bombarded by all that. Did uh, you laugh though? Uh, no, I'm, I a, I'm a, a tough laugh. I mean, humor is basically impossible to pull off. I mean, it's such it's such a higher standard. You That's know? pretty funny, Donald. <laughs> I laugh a lot. The Clarence Thomas thing at the very beginning of the yeah, book. I, yeah, I I liked it. Collins just. It, it he does, is high standard. That's does, novel length humor is very, very hard. Oh, I mean, yeah. and, and talk about, in fact, timeliness. Right at a time when T- Clarence Thomas in real life has just right. spoken. That's uh, crazy. The novel is like stand-up comedy. It's full of riffs, and some of them yeah. hit and some of them miss. Yeah. yeah. Um, very quickly, um, there was a one novel set. First of all, we should say there's a Connecticut author, kind of Jim Shepard, who's in this draw. He's born in uh, Bridgeport and uh, went undergrad to Trinity College. But there's also a novel set in Connecticut, which I believe our panel all detested, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> just uh, you know. I, I hate to end on a note of animadversion, but but there it is, right? I the mean, Invaders by Carolina Wachowiak. I I just have a lot of Connecticut stereotype fatigue. You know, country club. You know, agita. I've had enough. I've had enough of reading it's about it. It's a satire of a wealthy Fairfield County community, and and to to do that really well, you sort of have to be like Edward St. Aubin. I mean, you have to have a scalpel-like irony that you apply to these people. Mm-hmm. This was just a bunch of sort of caricatures, really. Yeah. Um, Alex, who have you got in the final? Did you, get your, did you fill out a bracket? I didn't fill out a bracket. I mean, if if I had to give one book that I think everyone should read, I yeah. think everyone should read The Turner House by Angela Flournoy. Yeah. I This is the story of a family in Detroit from the Great Migration to the Great Recession, mm-hmm. and I, I love this book with a passion. It's a I, great I novel. It's yeah. a great novel. How about you, Julia? Who do you see coming out? Who's your champion? I My champion is The Czar of Love and Techno. Mm. I Woo-hoo! really, really love that yeah. book. And Go ahead, Kevin. Um, I mean, one thing we should say, Kevin Guilfoyle, is that um, your favorite book, uh, Fates of Furious, I mean, it has a tremendous chance of still winning the tournament. I, f- I think a zombie book won last year, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, once you once you get into that zombie round, you win that. All you have to do is win that one match, and you're in the final. So, yeah, it's still so, alive. Yeah, so it's almost good to be. I mean, if you have a chance of being a zombie, it's good to get knocked out. By the way, uh, Faces and Furies does not actually have zombies in it. If you weren't listening at the beginning of the show, you might be thinking that it's a zombie book. Like, it's a zombie book? It's not a zombie book. All right, thanks to everybody, especially our athletes here who read so many books. That was amazing. And we'll be back next year with another tournament of books. Meanwhile, we'll be back tomorrow, too. But I can't make myself stop Okay, it's come down to A Piece of My Mind, Poetry by Charlie Sheen versus Confessions of an Heiress by Paris Hilton. And the winner is... Fire!